Have a seat, everyone. We move into our time of teaching, and like I mentioned last week, I'll mention it again. Uh, Lakeland follows the Reformed tradition in, uh, from 500 years ago and so forth. Uh, you have basically two major features in Reformed uh, church and the worship tradition. Sacrament of the Word, meaning the Bible and the Word of God, and then the sacrament of the Lord's table, the communion, the Eucharist. And so we do both of those, and that's why you'll find an extended time of teaching. That was a big deal in the Reformation as everyone began to embrace the Bible for themselves. And so uh, we're doing that as well. So um, we move into our time of teaching. And um, I mentioned last week like um, that this week was going to be on grief and loss. And uh, so if Uh, I don't know if you want to call this a caveat or an apology or whatever, but if you've just lost someone like in the last week or two or month, this may feel a little clinical, you know, and cold. And so I'm sorry for that. I I tried to warn the folks that were here last week, like don't bring someone who's just raw in the whole thing. What really this morning's for is if you've lost someone months ago or years ago, you know, a year ago or something like that, that'll find a little more traction, okay? So, um, sorry about that if this is going to hit you just sideways here a little bit, okay? Um, so, let's begin with this little idea, and it's made up. Suppose you're on a deserted island, and you only get to have one verse out of the Bible. That's it. You only get one verse out of the Bible for your whole tenure on the deserted island, okay? What verse would it be? What verse would you choose out of the Bible if you only got one verse? Maybe you just go with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. You know, because that would be punchy, and you'd be like, just, that's it, God. In the beginning, it's all we need to have on this deserted island is in the beginning, God. Uh, maybe you go with John three sixteen. Yeah? Yeah, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Right? That kind of sums up Jesus' entire mission, the whole purpose of everything. You'd have the eternal life, which could be a nice hope if you're on a deserted island. Uh, Might take a while, but nonetheless, you might have that, right? Uh, If you didn't have a lot of memorization skills or whatever, you just maybe go with the Apostle Paul's classic right of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Jesus is Lord. Enough said. Jesus is Lord. Bam. We're we're done. You know, I'll just go with that. Or you could jump to the very end of the Bible, if you're on the deserted island, and you could just have the hope uh, of John's revelation, right? Chapter 22, verse 20, second to last verse. Yes, I'm coming, says Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I think that'd be really handy if you're on a deserted island, and I hope Jesus comes on a ship. Uh, That would be nice. So um, I think, though, for me, because I got to think about it more than you guys, I think my verse, if I only got one verse out of the whole Bible, would be Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Matthew chapter 11, verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. It's short unbelievably short. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Easy to memorize, even for me. And, uh, and I believe it's got a whole lot of Swiss army knife to it. You know, 
it, it comes in handy in a lot of situations. And here's how I think that happens. Jesus, Jesus, uh, Jesus wept. You know the situation. This is actually history out of the Gospels. It's not a parable or a narrative story type thing. It's actually real stuff, that kind of narrative. Jesus' good friend, Lazarus, has died. Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, call for Jesus to come because he's not there. So it takes them a couple of days to get there or so. And everyone's grieving. Apparently, Lazarus was uh, popular, at least, perhaps important in his community. Martha and Mary, they were somebody, I suppose. They might have been important as well. We don't really know. But the entire community is there grieving over the loss of Lazarus. And when Jesus shows up, Mary, Lazarus' sister and Jesus' good friend, says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus goes on to see where Lazarus is lying, and Jesus looks around at the people, and everyone's weeping, and, and there's the tomb right there where Lazarus lies, and Jesus begins to weep along with everyone else. He stands before the, the tomb, though, and he, it's sealed, and Jesus shouts out, Lazarus, Come forth. Now, that'd be a good one, maybe. A good keeper if you're on the deserted island. Lazarus, Lazarus come forth because there's a lot of hope in the resurrection. That's very, very hopeful. Lazarus comes forth, of course. I think I'm going to stick it out there with Jesus wept. Here we have God in the flesh, in Jesus, experiencing life and suffering and all of its dimension, even the lowest point of human experience, the loss of someone we love, right there, and Jesus is right there in the midst of it. Jesus is present in our life, in our mess, in our loss, in our suffering, in our illness, and our grief. Jesus is right there. Jesus wept. God is with us. These two words, they don't have anything in there about the resurrection. They don't sum up creation. They don't even say anything about the sovereignty of God. What they say is Jesus in all of his humanity, God in all of his incarnate humanity is here with us. Whatever you're going through, whatever your life has been through, Jesus wept and he is weeping. That's why I'm choosing that one. Jesus is just like us. And he knows us, and he knows everything about us. Of course, <laughs> our first response is Mary's response. You know, Jesus, if you'd been here, my spouse hadn't got, wouldn't have got cancer. And Jesus, if you'd been here, my teenager wouldn't have gone wild. And Jesus, if you'd been here, then my, my baby, my baby wouldn't be in the ICU for all these months. Jesus, if you'd been here. You know, I mean, the fact is that Mary can actually ask Jesus because he is there and Jesus wept. Jesus wept. This tells us Jesus belongs in our world, to our world, and is of our world. When Jesus wept, it's like Jesus is inconsolable too. Grief is grief and Jesus grieves. There is no miracle cure for deep loss. 
We keep asking the question, why is there suffering? And there is no legitimate answer that will ever satisfy that. And that's why we keep asking the question. I've spent enough time in hospital ERs to see what happens when grief hits. And I'm going to run through then for you in my uh, grief therapy training from years ago. I'm going to run through uh, several stages, if you want to call it. I don't like the word stages. Grief therapy doesn't like the word stages either, really, except for the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief. It's actually more expanded than that. But I'm going to run through it, and I'm telling you what happens. The very first thing, it happened to me, and it happens to everyone, and we're there in the ER, and the very first thing that happens is shock. The very first thing that happens is shock. Why shock? It's pretty obvious. The unbelievable is actually now happening. The impossible is now happening. Someone has died. Someone you love, someone who was there, and now they're not there, and it is irreconcilable. It, it cannot be happening. And our conscience our mind, our body, and everything else is suddenly not normal. There is nothing normal suddenly in the world. You don't even belong on the planet. This is not happening. Shock. And shock then is followed very shortly and for actually quite a bit of time then is then followed by emotions. And I mean all emotions and all crazy emotions. It is, you're in shock and then you go into all of these emotions. And our emotions are your body's reaction to the impossible. All of what's going on in your head now gets manifested through your physical body because you're uh, just welcome to the 21st century. All of us who are in our heads so much, you have a body. And the body grieves in its own way. And um, it will tell you that something's terribly wrong. And emotions are when the loss hits. There's crying and there's sobbing. You, you aren't hungry. You can't sleep. Um, and after the shock and the emotions, we feel like no one is experiencing what we're feeling. You know somehow in the back of your head that other people have lost someone. But that doesn't matter. Because no one can understand what's going on inside of you. It's yours and you can't get rid of it. You can't stop thinking about it or being present with it. And your entire physical form is consumed with the whole thing. What happens after this? Because of the isolation of it, because of what we feel, we then move into sort of a, uh, really it's a depression this is a quick early depression and, um, and isolation. You're alone. That's what begins to happen. You feel all alone in the, in the thing. And you actually begin to get some words that begin to come at this point. You begin to think. And you cry out like many of the Psalms, about a third of the Psalms, uh, of the 150 Psalms, are have some sort of notion of this, like Psalm, the 42nd Psalm. Uh, it's not a Psalm of David, it's just a psalmist. But the 42nd Psalm, uh, in there, it says, I said to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I walk about mournfully? Jesus, if you just would have been here. Right? This is saying this, you know, 
hundreds of years earlier than Jesus. The psalmist says it's like he's carrying around a dead wound in his body. There's something rotting inside of him. And he can't get rid of it. That's what it feels like. Something has died inside and yet he's still alive. And he ends up saying these classic words that all of us have said at some point. Where are you, God? Where are you? 42nd Psalm. Where are you? So in all of this, the body can't continue to think because it's not a thinking thing. And what happens then is that the body then gets sick. Physically sick. You break out. You got GI issues. You got headaches. You got migraines. You can't see straight. You actually get a cold, uh, sore throat. I mean, your stomach hurts. Whatever it is, your body's finally just worn out. You're weak. You you're have sleeplessness. You're susceptible to everything. And the body just says, I give up. And it, it, it just, it collapses around you. At the same time, around the same sort of thing here, a few days into it, um, they call it panicky. Uh, whoops. I didn't bring an eraser with me. Oh, there we go. Panicky, which is really anxiety. Anxiety attacks come. You, you can't stop them. Uh, you freak out. You panic. Uh, suddenly, you, you, it's like you jump back to shock and the emotions, and it just comes on you. It's like it's all sudden, suddenly, it's the first moment, and it's all happening again. And that's just the reality of it. And it, because, once again, your brain's saying, like, did this really happen? Did they really die? I, I feel like I'm living in a story or something. Like my life is suddenly a movie, some tragic movie. But it's me. And it's real. So you get panicky and anxiety comes. And then... Days and nights drag on, and we gain just a small amount of distance from what happened. And we begin to think about what we did wrong over the years. You begin to review things and the relationship that you had, and you begin to think things like, I should have said I love you more. I should have hugged them more. I shouldn't have worked so much. I shouldn't have been so consumed with that hobby. We should have sat together. We should have had our picture taken together. We should have done more vacations. And so what happens is, is this sort of regret comes in and you get this classic guilt. The guilt comes and it has a regret with it about the things that we just did wrong. And the deal is, they're real things. Yeah, you should have hugged them more. You should have said, I love you more. You should have spent more time together. The shouldas and the wouldas and the couldas. And the guilt, a lot of it is just flat out legit. It's legit stuff. And then comes anger.
should have been here, Jesus. Why did this happen? This wasn't supposed to happen. This is impossible. And you get angry. And the anger is real. And uh, you can justify it. But this is a critical key moment. The anger is the important part about whether or not you're going to come out on the other side of this somehow. So anger is a big deal. Because anger, if you settle into this, if you settle into the anger, you could become a bitter, resentful person for the rest of your life. Your bitterness and your anger can become your friend and you can begin to own it so much that it becomes your personality and you end up a cranky old dude. This is a critical moment on who you're going to be in the future. And what grief therapy says, from a Christian perspective especially, I'm throwing that in, they actually didn't teach it that way, but I think it's this way. What, what happens here, what you have to have out of this is confession. That may not be, confession may not be your most intuitive thing that you think of, but guilt and anger require confession. Confession to God, confession to self, perhaps confession to others. At this critical anger moment, confession is the thing we have to embrace. Confession to, the, to God who put us here because we were just thinking, why did you even give me this life? Why did you even allow me to go through all of this? This is your fault, God. You start sounding like Job. Why is this? And confession is when you start coming clean and you start admitting reality about you, your shortcomings, and the fact that you don't know everything. And we confess that there is always going to be something about life that we don't understand. That's the confession to self. That there are things in this world that preachers and everybody else aren't going to solve. It's not going to get fixed. And what do we get for confessing to God? What's the result of confession? You come to terms. In other words, it's a form of acceptance. Whoops. Yeah, you come to terms with things. You come to terms with the fact that you need God. You come to terms with the fact that you can argue with God. You come to terms with the fact that we don't know everything. And you come to terms with the fact that everybody, everybody on the planet experiences loss and grief. It is part of the human condition. Somehow in our modern, uh, modern American you know, culture, where we have most everything we want, we begin to fall, fall into this trap that we should not, uh, it's not permissible for to experience any sort of suffering. The fact is, is that human suffering is a part of living. 
More on that in a moment. Now, <laughs> what, what you have to get, I, I don't like the idea of stages because stages says it's linear and somehow you like get to the end and you're like, bing, I'm done, all happy, shiny. And like you know and I know and everybody on the planet knows that at any given moment you could be all like, oh, yeah, it's all good, the sun is shining. And then all of a sudden, bam, you're into anger. Oh, wait a second, emotions going crazy. And then depression, and then out of that, you're back over here and having some sort of panic attack. And then out of here, you're like, oh, I'm back to guilt. Oh, wait, I better run to confession. And pretty soon, you're just all over the place. And this goes on for years. It gets better over time, but it can go on for a long time. It can go on for a long time. This is why I wrote Jesus wept as my one verse. This is why I think Jesus wept is it. This is all Jesus wept. This is Jesus walking walking the roads with us of life and standing there before the grave inconsolable and crying with us. When my mother died way back in 1995 when Lakeland was just barely beginning and it was October 1st, 1995. And you know those um, warm October thunderstorms, you know, where the winter is beginning to try and chase out the summer that we all love so much and I always think of the October storm, storms, I think at that time, the Chiefs game, <clears throat> where the water was flowing this far down the steps, and everyone's standing there while their beers washed away. And, um, and I think of those kind of storms. And that year, 1995, when my mom died, a set of those storms came in. And um, it, was, uh, it was dark, and it was in the early hours of the morning. And I was awake, of course, because my mom just died two days earlier. And through the window, you know, laying there in bed, you know how you can kind of see the little flash of lightning. You're like, what was that? You're like, oh, storm's coming. You can't hear anything yet. You just see the lightning coming through. And um, I got up and pulled on my clothes. And I it was still warm, you know. And I went out and sat on... Uh, the front porch swing. That one. I grew up with that swing. It sits on our front porch of our house. And I went out and I sat in that swing and I watched the storm slowly come in. It was a slow mover. And it was calm, deadly calm. No thunder yet. And I sat out there and that porch swing if you've ever been to my house and you sit on the porch swing which probably all about three people have done because nobody wants to sit on it for some reason and it squeaks when you go back and forth on it a really like fingernails on the chalkboard type of a squeak because it's metal on metal and uh, that porch swing sat on the house where I grew up and I don't even know where my folks got it I think they got it in an early marriage from somebody it was already old when they got it 
and it was all crusty. And um, we would, <clears throat> I grew up at an old farmhouse <clears throat> that had been swallowed up by suburbia. Old classic farmhouse, you know, dormers and all that on there. It had a huge front porch, bigger than this thing I'm standing on. And a uh, big overhang, no gutters. You could stick your hands out as kids, and the rain would go through your fingers coming off the roof. And that's that porch swing. We called the porch swing, by the way. We called it the electric chair because we loved to sit out there. And um, when the storms came in, until the lightning hit across the street, and I don't think any of us kids' feet touched the ground when we got into the house. But um, so we, after that, we called it the electric chair. And so I sat in that swing listening to the rhythm of the squeaks and the, the stillness and the thunder coming in that night. Two days before, I had to sit at our family kitchen table where my dad and my mom still were, and my mom's gone, and I had to sit there at that kitchen table and tell my dad, you can't stay here anymore. There's no one here to take care of you. And him a stroke victim, paralyzed on his left side with his mouth open. And suddenly his world ended. I thought about that. And soon the thunder started clapping and the wind picked up, my wife sleeping upstairs. And I could just begin to hear in the rumbles and the squeaking of the swing, I could hear my mom. And my life, my childhood went before me. And God was there. And the thunder got louder. And I could just hear a whole course of my life just saying, I know. I know. I know. Next two mornings did the same thing. Just a set of storms came in. And then the storm stopped. See, what loss and tragedy do for us, everyone, is, is it forces us to belong. Belong on the planet, belong with other people, belong with God, belong with friends, belong to your family, and belong to your past. It forces you to belong. It puts you on the earth And that's why it defines life. Loss and grief is a part of the human experience. And it makes you stop hurrying and scurrying around and makes you settle into the soles of your shoes. Feet on the ground, dirt between your toes. It grounds you. We are forced to stand there in front of the tomb and Jesus is right beside us. Jesus wept. And we're all weeping together and we gnash our teeth and we hear that deafening roar of pain that drums out that the impossible just happened. And that's what we belong to. The impossibilities of life are real. And we go deeper and we grow a deep taproot and we become souls instead of just consumers. We belong to God because because Jesus wept. And Jesus weeps with all of us. If loss creates deep belonging to God and ourselves and others, then we have to admit that a deeper belonging means a deeper understanding of life. You, you mature 
You mature. And a deeper understanding of life is what it means to be a seriously minded, mature human being. You grow up. Jesus weeps with us. You get a new relationship with God. A relationship that says, grief happens, I can't explain it all. Jesus weeps. That's all you get. I hear myself say these things and I realize that you just cannot give a sermon or go to a class or do anything that will make this make sense. You cannot cognate this in your head and have it like, oh yeah, I get it. I'm totally down with that. You have to experience it. And you will. The question is, of course, is what kind of people are we then? What kind of person are you? Who are you? I'll tell you what kind of people we are. We're people who live life together because we're church people. We're Christ followers. We're brothers and sisters. We're family. That's what kind of people we're supposed to be. And that's who we're striving to be. The primary goal of this church is to build strong and deepening relationships inside of Jesus Christ. We are a community. Like it or not, we are handcuffed together and you'll have to gnaw your paw off to get out of it if you do it right. Otherwise, it's all just superficial religion. You and I will someday have to cash in on the relationships that we have built around here. You can have other relationships, and they'll be good, your hobby friends and your work friends or your neighbors or whatever, and that's great, and family, all that. But it's the believers in your, in your posse that count. It only takes one or two. That's all you need around here. You don't need to know everybody in the church. That'd be superficial anyway. You just need a couple of deep relationships in life, and you better invest in them because someday you're going to have to cash in that investment. So take care. You see, everyone, what happens is, and I'm talking to young parents here now, the, the problem is, is in life, what I've noticed over the decades, is that you get smaller and smaller and tighter and tighter as life goes on. You know how it first happens? You're at a birthday party, and all the kids are like four or something like that, and then you see some mom or dad jack slap their kid, and you're like, uh-oh, I'm not hanging out with them. You're not going over to their house, Junior, to play anymore, right? And you say, like, I don't like that kind of parenting. And then you're like, and they drive too fancy of a car. And their house is too big or too small. They don't live in the right neighborhood. And pretty soon, you just start tightening up, and you start getting smaller and smaller. And by the time you're like my age, you're like this big. And you don't want to know anybody or have any friends, and you're just a cranky old dude. Totally defined by what you won't accept in this world. And you know what you'll be? Alone. Alone. That is not the way life is supposed to end up. So work hard and forgive easily and travel light. Because otherwise you may pay a desperate price for it. You better invest in your friends and keep very, very short lists. You're going to need it.
How do you be with friends then in grief? Well, I'm going to tear a page out of Judaism, out of modern Judaism and historic Judaism. And uh, the first stage uh, in, for Jews, if you have friends, I have relatives that are Jews. And uh, the very first stage of when somebody dies is, I'm going to say it slowly, is sitting shiva. You see why I'm saying it slowly? <laughs> sitting shiva. Uh, shiva in Hebrew means seven. And for the first seven days after a loss, you sit shiva together. Okay? And what is shiva? What do you do? In the evening, you go over to the person's house who lost something. Everybody brings food. The person who had the loss, of course, doesn't have to do anything. They're probably not hungry anyway. And what you do is um, you, the lights are low. Everyone takes off their shoes and you sit low, sometimes on the floor, sometimes on cushions or whatever you want to do. This is like, you do this. This is not like optional. You sit low, you cover every mirror in the house in black fabric. Nobody will see their image of God. Okay? There's lots of food. It's not a fast. And they say together at some point in the evening, they do the mourner's Kadesh. The Kadesh is not sad. It's not about loss. It doesn't explain anything. It's actually just a really short, simple, sounds like a psalm uh, that just praises God. Why would you want to try and explain away everything with some prayer? You're just left with something basic. Something true about God. And then after dinner, you go for a walk together. You get your shoes on, your coat or whatever, and you go out and you walk around the block or a couple of blocks or go to the park, and the person who lost everything walks by themselves ahead of all their friends, and the friends are about 20 paces behind. And they can talk and cajole or whatever. But the person with the loss, see, they recognize in this tradition that nobody can walk with them. It's too hard but they're there following them. We would do well in our traditionless society to rip off some ideas from this. Hang out, do a prayer, a standard one. It could be, you know, the one we're going to do here in a moment, uh, the Our Father. Sit on a porch swing. Sit low. Have lots of food. And do it for several days. We're not good at this because we don't like to feel pain. And you know, for those of you who've been through this, you, you have a membership card, right? I don't know how to explain it, but if you've lost your parents or a loved one, you've been initiated into a club. And you know there's no words that'll fix things. The rest of us all want to say something appropriate. You know, you're going to the funeral or something like that. Like, I don't want to go. I don't know what to say to him. Like, then don't. Don't say nothing. Just show up. And just say, God bless you. It must be hard. Don't even say that. Just keep your mouth shut. Just show up. Yeah. That's all you got to do. Go in peace, everyone.